Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. Hey, Dream Builder. This episode is powered by Design Crowd. Design Crowd is a website that helps entrepreneurs, startups, and small businesses get creative and quality designs from custom logos to business cards and even web designs. There's a community of over 900,000 designers from all across the world that's ready to bring your idea to life in as little as ours. So head on over to designcrowd.com forward slash dream nation and see what all the hype is about. What's up, Dream Nation? We are back again, and I'm excited for this episode because we're going to talk about some of the things that people never talk about in the beginning, which is how do you have a framework around having an efficient budget when it comes to life, right? And so there's so much to unpack there, and if you're wondering what exactly does that mean, we're going to definitely tap into all of that. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming my brother, Mr. Jesse Meekum. To the show, Jesse, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? What's up, Dream Nation? I'm very happy to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Now, always love to make sure that we give the proper context. And the way that we do that is I compare us as thought leaders, change makers, entrepreneurs to superheroes. Why? Is because we're constantly flying around the world. We're putting on our cape and we're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And so for you, you've been solving that for many of people, both entrepreneurs and even intrapreneurs. And the thing that we know is behind every Superman, there's that guy named Clark Kent. But a lot of times we don't even know who he is. So behind the Superman who we know as Jesse and, and the company of YNAB, uh, tell us, take us behind the scenes and that Clark Kent, tell us who is your Clark Kent. That's interesting. Well, uh, I mean, to be honest, most of the time I'm just doing my normal thing with my kids. I've got seven kids. So, uh, we, you know, we're, I just stay busy with those, those people uh, that live with me. And, uh, you know, my wife keeps me busy. Um, I work in my wood shop as much as I can when I'm not working, raising some chickens, trying to do some gardening when we got, you know, the spring coming up here pretty soon. And, so yeah, I've got a lot of other interests besides just money. I think money is just a channel through which I can enjoy other parts of life. And so I just, my effort really is to try and help people get money kind of moved out of the way where it's just running and, and then they, they can move along, you know, and, and do things that really bring them a lot of joy. Balancing my, my checkbook, if that even existed anymore, you know, doing any kind of like nitty gritty money work, I, I don't actually enjoy it, but it's nice to know that it's done and done well. And then I can enjoy all the other things. So the Clark Kent side of me is, is like a budding woodshop worker, homesteader dad, you know? No, man, I love it. Seven kids. Your patience has to be through the roof. Oh, no, it's, it's, I have no patience, but they're still alive, you know? So it's right. fine. Yeah. And you're still alive, <laughs> you know, because I mean, I just got, so I got, obviously, you know, I got my son, CJ, who's nine and he's cool, yeah. but then I got my daughter and she's three. And this has been the first year that she's really coming into her own personality. Oh, yeah. And, and it's yeah. just, it's it's like, who are you right now? Because yeah. CJ was always so mellow and he was just always had a lot of energy. But I like to think of her as she just imposes her will on the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, it's wild. So I, I commend you for having seven kids. How many of them are girls? Uh, I've got the three girls and then four boys. So we, we started and stopped with boys. And we got some girls mixed in there. It, it was people always talk about the terrible twos, but I, I think three is where the kids start to really push the limit. And they're like, well, I don't want to do what you said I should do, you know? And so, Man. yeah, so threes are always a little trickier for me, but um, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. They all come out super unique. And uh, you know, I don't know what the nature nurture equation is. Haven't figured that one out, but they come out their own people. And you know, you just try not to mess them up while you have them. 
Man, that's so, so true. It's it's so crazy because my, my daughter is so much of a reflection of my mom who, you know, obviously mm -hmm. I lost my mom, uh, but she's so much, she, her, just her will is so crazy to the point that we will laugh about this someday. But I mean, I think it was two weeks ago. She literally had my wife crying. Like that was how much she was just like, it was just a long day. And so yeah. I go in there cause she goes to take the kids upstairs to bed. And, uh, and then I go in there like 30, 35 minutes later. And I noticed that she's laying in, in the bed with my daughter. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the next day I was like, how did it go? And she was like, literally, we both cried to sleep. Like that was how much of a battle it was. And, and, and that's who my daughter is every day. So yeah, just like you said, you just try to not mess them up. Cause I always say with that personality, she either going to be in jail one day or she's going to be a president. Like yeah, she is, yeah. <laughs> she's so feisty, but yeah, man. So cool. I, I appreciate you sharing about your story and the back the backside of who you really are. Cause I think that's something that we connect with. Now I want to talk about how did the infatuation, I guess, of teaching people about the money principles come in for you? Were you somebody, did you grow up with, with your parents telling you about money and this is all very important or did you grow up and then all of a sudden you got into, you know, huge credit card debt and then you had to find your way out of it? Yeah. I, you know, I was lucky. My, I mean, we grew up pretty middle income and pretty blessed in that way. Uh, I, I never had money stress as a kid where I was kind of observing how my parents were, were doing money. I, I could tell that it wasn't like their favorite topic to, uh, you know, to talk about, but they seemed to be fairly prudent. And one thing that really stuck out to me was uh, my, when I was about 14, I think my dad gave me a few books and he's like, you should read these. And he didn't, he didn't do that a lot. So when he did, I, it kind of, I don't know, it sunk in and he, he gave me a, a Dave Ramsey book called financial peace. He gave me a book called the, the, um, millionaire next door. And then he gave me one called the richest man in Babylon. Mm. Those three, I just read, I mean, they're all easy reads. Like there's, there's no rocket science in there. Um, but they kind of resonated with me as a 14 year old. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. This makes sense. And so, um, that was the end of that. And then as I went to college, I just kind of had this mindset adopted from those books that I hadn't really realized had sunk so deep into me, but the books were just like, don't go into debt for stuff. Don't borrow money, you know, save a little bit. And so I had done that. And when I got into school and my wife and I married young, uh, I still had three years of school left to get an accounting degree and we didn't have any money. Uh, I mean, we were, we were making 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, and my wife had majored in social work. You don't make money in social work, at least not where she was. And, and so we were just like hand to mouth. But in that moment, we still were super focused on, we don't want to borrow any money. And when this new baby came along, um, you know, about a year after we were married, when Porter was, was inbound, Julie wanted to be able to stay home with him. And so I had these two things. I thought, I don't want to borrow money to finish school. I can only work part-time and I, I don't want to, have Julie still work. And those three things where I was like, okay, I'm stuck up against the, these rocks, you know, how do I get out? That was where I came up with the idea. Maybe I could, this little spreadsheet that I built just for me and Julie, it's just for us to manage our meager income. I thought maybe other people would want to use the spreadsheet. And that's all it was just this little rinky dink spreadsheet. So, okay, so we get, I, wait, 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 wait. So okay, yeah, 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 no, no, no. So you, you decide, okay, I'm, I'm up against the wall because I feel like this is where 65, 70% of people are going to be able to relate to this right now. They say, look, I'm up against this wall. I got all three of these challenges that I can't, I can't do anything with right now. I do have a little asset right here though. Tell me about how you took it from where it is today, where you've helped tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people with just starting with this little spreadsheet. Like, what did that look like? And first off, let me ask, what was the conversation like when you talked to Julie about, okay, I want to basically teach other people what we've been able to do. Was she like, no, go get a real job where you can make more money, not like I'm, I got kind of a, a pipe dream that I'm going to teach tens of thousands of yeah. people with this spreadsheet. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was neither of those two options. It was door three, I think. So I told her, I said, Hey, maybe I could just sell this spreadsheet that we've been using. And we've been dutifully using this thing. And I, I perfected it for us in our unique situation. Well, you think it's unique. It's not as unique as, as everyone thinks, but I had perfected it for us. And She's like, I just don't think people will buy it. I mean, that was her first response. 
and and I kind of sat on that for a little bit. It wasn't like this obsessive thing. I just thought I got to figure out a way to make some money. I still have two years left of school. I don't want to borrow any. I was working as many hours as I could while still staying in school. And I knew that it was important that I get through school as fast as possible. So to delay it, it was also a cost. And I'd been doing spring, summer school. I just went year round and I, I got a five-year degree in four years by just not stopping. And so I wanted to keep that pace up uh, and, and to get the grades that I needed to maintain, like, a, I think I had a half scholarship or something to get that and not have to pay extra, you know, even more tuition. I had to get my grades to a certain level. It was not easy, at least not for me. And so I knew, I mean, I was, I was up against like real finite time limits. And um, so it wasn't an, a thing of like, I ah, just work more hours. Like I was already working 25 and they had told us not to work any, you know, during these, this kind of rigorous school time. So being kind of in that situation, I'm driving home or riding home on the bus because we didn't own a car. And uh, I'm talking with a buddy and he had kind of been selling some stuff online and had some kind of a gig going on where he knew a lot more about selling things online. And this is back in 2004. There were no, there were no phones, no apps. Google was a thing. AdWords was really new and stuff like that. And so I'm like, hey, I have this idea to sell this spreadsheet that helps people manage their money. It's helped me and Julia. And he was like, oh yeah, you should sell it. So he had a little experience. Uh, Julia was like, I don't think people will buy it. And I went with his, you know, with his option. And I told her, I said, hey, I'm, I'm what was the this. option? Like, what did you do? How did you, I mean, how did you even sell the first one? I, I uh, learned how to build web pages and, uh, and I built a website and, um, you know, bought the domain. I asked Julie, like, what should we name this business? And she was sitting on the couch with, uh, with Porter, who was like a day old, you know, and she's like, what, uh, how about you need a budget? And so I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. It's like a little bit in your face. I like it. So we bought the domain and that was also when domains were easier to buy, you know? So everything about it, like there were a lot of things working for us, but at the end of the day, I was trying to sell a spreadsheet for 10 bucks a piece and nobody was buying it. Nobody. Cause I, and then I, I talked to my buddy again, who had helped me originally by saying, Hey, I think you should do it. And I'm like, ah, nobody's buying. It's been two weeks. I've been uh, buying AdWords, you know, on Google, which at the time were like five cents a click. You couldn't, you couldn't find that. You couldn't find that for a fraction of what it is now. I mean, it's crazy, but he, uh, he's like, oh, it's too cheap. You're, you're telling people it's not valuable by selling it for 10 bucks. And I'm thinking, oh man, it's just a spreadsheet. Like I, you know, who's going to pay more? And he's like, do it, do double it. So I put a one in front of the nine. So instead of 995, I did 1995. And the next day I got my first sale. And uh, I had to refund the sale because this lady was using these weird computers called Macs. And I'm like, what the heck is a Mac? I don't know what that is, you know? And uh, I go to the university and I'm like, I heard, I was told there are Mac computers somewhere. And they're like, oh, in the film building, you'll find Macs, you know? So I go to that building, I fire up the spreadsheet and on the Mac, it just blew up, you know? So I had to refund my first sale. But uh, after that, I figured out how to get it to work on Macs and slowly people started buying very, very slowly. Um, how long did so it there take? Was, how long did it oh, take before you made your first like thousand dollars in a month doing this? Uh, probably, let me think. Probably nine months. Wow. So yeah. you, and 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 what kept you going? Right? Was it just because yeah. every every couple of days you would get a trickle of a sale? So you're like, okay, it's kind of working. I just got to crack it, this code. It was. There's a little bit of like, I mean, you get that sale. It was like an email that would land like so-and-so's paid you money. It was with, with some digital download system or something. And, and it was like total dopamine hit. You're just like, oh my gosh. this is, and then, and then you're nervous immediately. You're like, oh man, I hope this works. You know? So a lot of that was happening. We were getting a sale every few days, but we're talking 20 bucks a time, you know? So I'm still very much like we're dipping into savings. We're just living off of that as I'm working and doing my normal stuff. And I'm just trying to squeeze in time anywhere I can to work on this. Um, there, I took an internship about when I still had about a year left, did the standard thing you do in accounting, took an internship. And I remember one of the months where I was making pretty good money as an intern, we, uh, I, my profit from YNAB was like $38. And I remember thinking, I, I should probably just stop. Like I got this good internship. I'm working overtime. I'm banking money. I think we could squeak by. And something, I don't know, I just like, I'll just keep going with it, you know. Um, this was all well before I figured out we had four rules, you know. So I was still just kind of struggling to figure out where we fit 
in the market with this little spreadsheet. Wow. No, man, I, I love that story. And, and I, I asked that question specifically because so many people give up. Right. And so I wanted to know, like, how did you not give up? Because there's a lot of people right now that's like, man, I got a little bit of expertise. You know, I got things even more valuable than a spreadsheet. I even got a yeah. software. I got mm -hmm. like, you know, the whole nine yards. I've invested, you know, $20,000 into this, but I can't figure out how to gain traction on it. And so what was the thing? Was it Julie? Was it just looking at your kids every single day at the time? It was just Porter. Like, what was it that kept you going? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Porter uh, and Julie, I mean, Julie was telling me a lot of the, not a lot of the time, but she had to sit down with me one time, like, Hey man, we have this little baby. Like you can't just work all the time. You right. can't do that. Like you got to be here too. So she was a little bit of a check on me to not just go totally obsessed on it and work all hours. I mean, at the time, you know, I was uh, 23. I mean, you feel like you have limitless energy. I know looking back, I, I can say that, it's tough to remember every emotion and every feeling. Um, but I do, it, it was just a grind. And the thing is, if you sell one, one thing for 20 bucks, and then a few days later, you sell another one, that means next month, instead of doing $100 in revenue, maybe you'll do 200. And you figure things out as you go. And now people might go to wineup.com and be like, holy smokes, this guy's got to figure it out. It's, no, one, mm. you, you, ne you always are starting with just like the next the next obvious step. And I will say like our next moves at YNAB, even as, as large as we are now, and we're still a small business, but we're a lot larger than we used to be. Even now I feel like, ah, oh, next steps are pretty obvious. You know, the next steps. But if you were to say, well, what's your step in five years? I don't, we don't, I don't think that far ahead. You got, you got to scope down on the, on the goals so that you can get going on it. But when the goal is, is a thousand bucks a month, I mean, I never would have started. I needed $350 a month. That's what I needed. If I could make $350 a month, then we could just eke by, not borrow money. Julie could stay home with Porter. I finished school, then off to make my money in accounting. So if a $350 was the key, and that was something I could chase, but it wasn't $3,000. And it's important that we make the goal small enough where we aren't disabled by like how daunting it appears. Yeah, no, I love that. And I said that this is when I was first getting into real estate. I said that exact same thing. Like sometimes it's just the burden of that huge goal, which obviously we all have huge goals at the end of the day, right? Because that means that we'll be able to live the lifestyle that we want. But it's important, just like you said, to break it down so you can gain momentum, right? Like Rome wasn't, and I know it's a cliche saying, but Rome was not built in one day. It's not to say, and, and especially because I think that that's where so many people are like, man, I hate the journey. Like, and people, and other people say, you have to love the journey. I always say, you do not have to love the journey. You do not have to love the journey. You just have to embrace it, but you have to be married to the destination, right? Because that journey could change so much, right? Like one month, you might make that 350. Next month, you're like, I should make at least 500 this month if I just do exactly what I did last month. But then you might only make 150. But you still know what the end goal is. And that means your lane might have to change sometimes. So I think that that's so great. Now, as you started to grow YNAB, like talk to me about where did your challenges come from? Because you talk about, you know, like, where, where, talk to me about how many employees do you have today in YNAB? We're, we're about uh, maybe a little over 130 today. So wow. it's, it's a good, good number of good people. Um, but to give people perspective, I started it in September of 04, hired my first full-time employee in June of 08. So there's a long time where it was just me just doing the thing. And I had a couple of contractors that helped me out with things, especially uh, my now CTO. I mean, I hired him uh, for a good chunk of a year, part-time kind of moonlighting to build the software that replaced our spreadsheet. But even then the idea that he and I both had that he would eventually be full-time that the business could support him and me. No way. The business didn't even support me, uh, full-time. Like, Oh, I, you know, I took a salary from it until 2010 early, uh, probably yeah, early 2010. So it was like almost a six year, five and a half year span where it was supplementing and I was using it to try and get ahead, but I was not reliant on it to feed this growing family that I had. And wow. that, that allowed me to take the risks necessary to keep growing it. Instead of paying myself a larger salary, I could hire someone else. 
And it's just a way of doubling down. You know, you're, you might be the last to be fired, but you should be the last to start being regularly paid as well. Mm, That's powerful right there, right? You should be the last, somebody else should hear that. And I hope they hear that or they see this and they they say like, man, because this was somebody I had on and I want to say it was a previous episode, but I want to say it was a buddy, uh, Mac Lackey that he was, and he's been a part of like two eight figure exits and he had said when he was starting up this concept first off he just made sure there was a market there was demand for it and everything but he said every dollar that he brought in as soon as he had enough to where he felt like he could go hire somebody smarter than him so he would just build up these pools and and right away he would just try to hire somebody that was way smarter than him that could take him to the next level rather than trying to do it all himself and like okay i have money and he said i was living off of ramen noodles you know for like the first six months of every business but i was able to scale fast because I was able to go get the experts and I wasn't worried about myself being paid. So it kind of goes to your point. So I definitely love that concept. Now, knowing what you know now, and obviously it taken you six years, I'm sure you could probably start a business now and you would probably be able to accelerate your growth um in in a much shorter time so talk to me about what were the the challenges that you feel like if you were to do this over again you probably would not do this and it would help you have faster growth and be able to get to where you are now today one of the things that we've mastered uh that's taken a long time is finding the right people so um it's not always i mean you do want obviously the best you can get but they have to fit the kind of the culture, the core value, the character profile of your company. So if your company is all about expertise and the smartest in the room is the is the person that has control, and that's a fine way to run a company, uh, you just got to be very aware that that's how you run a company. And ours, we aren't that way. We, we want people that are genuine. We want people that are open-minded, that will change their mind. We want them to be, uh, you know, passionately pursue growth outside of work. We just want to hire interesting people that are experts in their area. And that took us a while to figure out, but we've really dialed in on how we find the right people and attract people. So when, when we put out a job posting, you know, we get 800, 900 applicants for this one position. We have the luxury of being able to just go through and really sift and figure out, okay, who's the right person. And if I were to start any business, I would take that, find the right people, be patient. It's not just slow to hire and quick to fire. That's obviously very good advice, but slow to hire. And during that slow process, you are very intentional about what it is you are looking for. That is key. Often we think, oh, I I just got to have someone take this off my plate. I'm swamped. Well, if you miss hire that person, you're you're going to be in way worse shape than if you just gone a little slower. So you got to be really careful about that and say, okay, what kind of company, what kind of character does my company have? And find people that have that character. And then it's just everyone gels. And there's there isn't the the gossip and the politics and all this other garbage that comes along where you have a mass of people. It's just people just working and enjoying their work and doing their stuff and working the craft and magic happens, but it's not magic at all. It's getting the right people and the right seats and uh, just letting things happen, you know, get out of the way at that point. So, I mean, I I'd start a carpet cleaning business with these people. I I would start a tire repair shop. I'd have to bring in someone that knew how to change tires, but I could take any, any one of our people and say, Hey, can you run, you know, front desk? Can you do this? Can you do that? You'd have a good tire shop because it's, it's not really about the business. I mean, we're experts in our, in our market, but those same attributes that make it a great place to work, that make it, I mean, we were, Fortune listed us number one best small business to work for in 2020. Mm-hmm. Maybe all the competition disappeared in 2020. I don't know, but we were it. And it's really about taking great people, caring about them, and then you could put them in any business you wanted. It would work as long as the, as long as you check a few box of, you know, few boxes of economic viability, right? Okay. There's product market fit. Okay, cool. Then you just put any good people there and, and it'll work. It'll definitely work. So you gotta be really intentional about the kind of people you hire and do not under any circumstances, just be like, well, I really need the work done. So I'll settle. You never settle. I love it, man. Talk to, what do you think? So as you're hiring and now having over 130 employees or almost 130 employees, 
What do you think as you're starting out a business, what's the most important hire first? Like, is it that assistant? Is it a salesperson? Is it a person to make sure that you're marketing so you get maximum exposure? What's like the number one thing that, that somebody needs to hire as they start to really grow their business and become more of an entrepreneur than a solopreneur and a better leader? Right. Yeah, honestly, it would probably depend quite a bit on the business. If you're in a professional situation, like let's say you're uh, you're really good at doing taxes, you probably don't need a marketer. You probably just need another doer that does it well. And then through word of mouth, you can get that flywheel going. You just do really good work. So you find people that just are excellent at delivering. Uh, if I were you know, running a carpet cleaning business, I would probably just go off of referrals. I just work on making sure my, my shirt's tucked in. I'm wearing a polo. I show up on time. I do my job. I'm pleasant. I smell good. And then I've got this, right? You'll get referrals. So there are other aspects. So like in my business, the first person I needed was someone with technical expertise. It was, it was just painfully obvious. I think for the most part, people will know where their pain point is. And they'll say, this is where I'm falling short. I couldn't code. I, you know, there's no way. So I knew I had to get someone technical because we were in the software space. However, you start to get that to where you feel like, okay, we've got a product. All right, this product is, it's, it's good enough, right? Then we started going into the support side, making sure we're taking care of the customers we already have. That, that gets the word of mouth going. You can't burn the bridge of those customers. Once you've got that figured out, technical product for us, then customer service, then we could start to say, hey, let's, let's get the megaphones. Let's scream about this thing. Hey, Dream Builder, if you're anything like me, you have no idea how to come up with a quality logo or even a creative design. You know that quality is important, but it's not always the easiest to nail down, right? That's where Design Crowd comes in. Whether it's a logo, a website, book cover, or even a social media ad, they have a community of over 900,000 professional designers around the world ready to help solve your creative problem. Head on over to designcrowd.com forward slash dream nation to learn more and just for being a part of the dream nation tribe you're going to receive a special vip offer when you sign up of up to 150 dollars credit now instead of waiting weeks for an agency to pitch you an idea you'll be able to get a design of exactly what you need within just three days so again head on over to designcrowd.com forward slash dream nation and check it out there's the blueprint right there. That's how we build a 130 employee uh, arsenal. But no, I love it. Now, the second part that I guess I had in mind is how many of your people pre-COVID was, do you have physical locations or was everybody since yeah. it's like a software that it was more virtual? We've always been 100% remote. So thankfully, we didn't have to do a big pivot or do, you know, do a lot of extra work to get things done in 2020. For us, it was it was business as usual. Uh, you know, combined with all the worry that's come with the, the crazy news cycle. But yeah, we're all remote. We stayed remote. We're really good at working remotely. I mean, you think about Fortune saying we were the number one great, you know, small business to work for, and we don't have an office. So there's something to it. But it's not just all oh, remote means it all works. Like there's there's a whole other side of working remotely well, that we've mastered over the last, you know, decade plus. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to transition into because for a lot of people right now, they they have a company, whether it's small business or even they're a medium-sized business, and they've had, you know, brick-and-mortar locations, one, two, maybe multiple, um, but now they struggle with how exactly do I keep a culture over Zoom? How All exactly right. do I keep a culture over Slack? So, like, what has been your blueprint for getting these types of awards? How have you kept your culture so strong being remote? Yeah. Well, the one thing that I, I take issue with is the word and only because it's misused. So the word culture, a lot of times it has the connotation of like benefits and perks and vibe at an office. Like, oh, they got foosball tables. They got a ping pong table. They do free lunch or whatever. So you might want, well, you know, I was on Google campus and spoke several years ago and you, you could see like, oh my gosh, the free food everywhere, bikes everywhere. I mean, it's crazy. Like, so you'd say like, oh, the culture is this interesting place that they've built. I like to think a lot more about the company character and that's about the attributes that your people possess. And you can't just declare, Oh, like our, you know, uh, integrity. Well, everybody's going to start out saying you shouldn't steal from the company. So like to lead with, we want you to be honest. I mean, it's, it's garbage, but what you really do is you say, what are the character attributes of our company? You know, what, what really drives us and you make them emotional. So one of ours is passionate pursuit of growth. 
you could say like growth minded or uh, even just growth, but I like to throw in words that mean things. So passionate pursuit of growth, not that there's ever an end in sight, but that's one character trait that our people have. And that translates into the business. So you have people that on their off time, they're like, I'm going to become a lot better at yoga, or I'm going to run a hundred mile race or two, or I'm going to do this or that. I mean, they're always just checking off goals, like in their personal lives, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to become a better, better father, a better mother. And you can't, you can't take someone that is wired that way and then put them into work. And they're going to be like, I'm just going to kind of see how I can, uh, get the most out of doing the least here at my job. Because that's not that person. Now, there are those people, but you just you just don't hire them. Right. And then people are like, how do you make sure your people are working when they're all remote? I'm like, well, I hire people that can't not work. Like they just, mm. they enjoy pursuing growth. They enjoy so, their craft. So before, and, and this is so fire. I'm so glad we're doing this. But for somebody else that says, okay, well, how do I even know that I have that person? Because people will say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm like, what are the questions, the meaningful questions that can tip me off in the beginning in that interview process to know, yes, this is somebody that has the character that fits our company. Yeah. We have a, it's probably about 25 questions. It's what we call the, the core value questionnaire. And um, I don't have, I mean, some of the questions offhand, you might be like, well, that doesn't seem like that revolutionary, but there, I mean, 25 of them and each one of them are designed to suss out one of our, our traits. So one of ours is humbly confident. So I would say like, well, is Cass, like, is he confident? Does he have a little bit of swagger, but at the same time, can he be like, oh yeah, I think I was wrong on that. Or are you always right? You know, are you always like, you can't say you were ever wrong. And I mean, you know, like being married to being in a relationship, you know, that doesn't work, but there are people that in an office setting, they will never back down. They will never say, Oh, you know what? I've actually thought this for six months. I take it all back. I take it all back. I'm convinced. But one of our traits being confidently humble, there are questions you can ask. You can, I mean, little things like, uh, tell us a time where you were just dead set on something. And then you changed your mind. And people will phone it in and be like, oh, I used to not like the show uh, Breaking Bad. And then I watched it and now I do. You're like, what kind of garbage answer is that? So you got to find meat, you know, and sometimes people just right. give you garbage and you just, you, I mean, you get 900 applicants, you can just let them go. But you get to those questions where people have an opportunity to display that trait. But it's not like, how are you confidently humble? Because anyone can make something up. You ask things that have them tell you a story about a time they demonstrated that without you being super explicit. And it, you know, this, this process that we're in with the, with this core value questionnaire, I mean, um, you know, I, I speak to different CEO groups and talk about this exact tool and it really is something you just refine over time. So you'll realize, oh, that question's kind of garbage. It doesn't give us much. You throw it out, you improve it a little bit. Um, but people sometimes, I mean, this is telling, sometimes people will be like, wait, I haven't even been on the phone with someone yet. I sent in my cover letter. We like their cover letter. We send them back this core value questionnaire, about a fourth of our cover letter. Um, people, maybe about 15% now will, will make it into the core value questionnaire stage. Some people will write in and be like, this is too many questions. I, I want to, and you're like, well, you know, that's right. it. We're good. It but one else will write back and be like, you know, this was a long questionnaire. It took me four hours, but I'll be honest, I really enjoyed the exercise. And you're like, well, that's interesting. So some people complained about having to do a little work. And some people were like, ah, I enjoyed the introspection. And you're like, well, that's a humble stance for someone to have, you know? So with all of that, that's the point where we can just say, okay, um, we can start to get an idea on the character traits of, of, uh, of these candidates. I love it, man. Uh, I love it. So the, I guess the man, and I don't know what just happened with my camera, but I got an editor, so we'll be fine. Oh, there you it go. just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got a Sony, and I don't. It just basically said that the internal temperature got too hot, so please allow Sonys it to cool do down. that. Yeah, yeah, I know like it. Sonys will just like suddenly flip, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what just happened, and it just turned off on me. But no, so yeah, we'll edit this part out. But no, I I love that. I I love it. So is this this questionnaire? Is this something that you developed internally, or did you take it from yeah. somewhere and then um, you kind of just tweaked it for your own? Yeah, we just we kind of just started. We realized we didn't want to interview everybody that sent in a cover letter, right? And we were like, we're like that doesn't scale at all. And so we thought, well, what's something we can do that'll help us whittle down the pool a little bit? And that questionnaire does a good job. It's a lot of work for us to read through. You know, if we've got 800 candidates to read through 150, you know, questionnaires, like it's, it's 
no party. Like it's serious work on our side. But then from that pool, you can maybe take another fourth and say, okay, we want to talk to these people. You know, they look yeah. promising for, you know, so, so is um, there we automated, just developed it over time. God, is there an automated system? Because even still reading through 800, 900, that's a, just like you said, that's, that's no fun. So is there something, some triggers that show you, these are the people that should probably, you know, probably, you know, get your eye and then you should send them off that questionnaire. Yeah, there are little things you can do, um, like give them specific instructions, like please send your cover letter as a PDF. So when they mm -hmm. send it as a doc, you don't read it. You know, you just, you reject them. Um, or, you know, the cover letter is, most, is the most important thing for us. Resumes, like, I, I don't remember, there's some crazy stat that Deloitte has, like number of resumes that have inaccuracies or gross embellishments on them. So the cover letter allows us to see personality a lot easier than a bulleted, I went to this school and did this and that's, that, that doesn't give us anything. So we don't look at resumes at all until we've established their, their traits that, you know, these, this character that they may have at then at that point, you might look back at the resume once they've made it pretty far in and you're comparing two people that have really great traits. We're like, Oh man, they check all seven of our core values. Now let's look at technical expertise or let's look at design experience, things like that. So, um, it's, we don't automate it, but there are a lot of little tricks, spelling errors. I mean, honestly, you, you just, I, I had someone apply the other, uh, the other day and they had misspelled their own name. Like their, like the last name, it was a D instead of an S and they wanted to put a D there and it was an S and I, and it was like big right on the top, you know? And I thought, okay. So, so it's just, you got to think about that person that's putting their best foot forward. Are they just, are they sending out 400 of these resumes through some automated thing? Or are they sitting there thinking about your company and how they can just make an impact at your company? Another trick is how many people talk about themselves only and don't talk about the work that they could do for you and how could they, they could just blow up your world with everything they know. I mean, there's some brag there that you want to see versus like, oh, I'd love to work remotely. I would love that. I'd love to travel. I'd love this. I'd love that for me, me, me. And you're like, wow, that's a little bit too much of you. You know, right. what would you bring for us? Right. right. So there's a good yeah. balance there. Man, that's. I mean, so I can fun. go on and on, Cass. On the, this stuff, like this is this is where magic is made. You know, getting the 100%. right hundred percent. So I can go on and on. No, man, this is this is good, and that's why I want to keep digging in. I think for so many people, again, they're starting their first business, and they want to make sure that again they make the right hire. But what are these little tricks that you can figure out to know if you have somebody that's going to align, just like you said, with your mission, your vision, your values, and they have the character that you have? Because then, if you can dig deep, you all it almost feels like you know them. They're part of your tribe, yeah. so then it's easier to figure out what their why is and tap into their inspiration, which then gets them to stay in the long term because. We haven't talked about it, but of course, as you know, over the last 10 years, 15 years, there's going to be a lot of turbulence, right? And so you got to be able to tap deep into their why. And if you know their why, because you've connected with them on all of these little uh, pieces, then it's a lot easier to get them to stick around. And then you guys come out winning on the other side together rather than, Absolutely. you know, you having to start all over. So I love that. Talk to me. One thing that we haven't talked about, I know you said you've spoken at so many different companies, but talk to me about the mentorship. How, did it take you a very long, because you were building this thing, you had a buddy who kind of showed you the online world, but as you really start to grow this thing, even after six years, what does that look like in terms of mentorship? Did you kind of learn it all on your own? Or was there a couple people out there that you had the privilege of being able to latch onto that helped pull mm -hmm. you through the growing years? Yeah, early days. Um books you know a book is a fantastic mentor and i would just read voraciously you know you read i mean there are some minds that are far brighter than mine that have written everything for you you know and and have been able to say okay here's what you should do and here's how you should be aware of this and here's a problem and here's how i think about this i mean great great business minds that have just bared it all and uh, i got a lot of inspiration from that early on about six years ago, I formally joined a, a CEO kind of network, uh, not networking, but like a CEO, almost therapy group where you, you know, I meet together once a month with about 15 other CEOs and we kind of share uh, problems, discuss things, give each other advice, call each other on BS, that kind of thing. And that's been, that's been very helpful to me as the business has grown. Cause then I can go to my buddy and say, Hey, you know, you're, 
you have 200 employees, you're running the things that I will maybe run into, could you help me out here? And, or, hey, uh, I feel like I'm crazy because I think this or that. And half of them say, oh, no, I've thought the same thing. You're not crazy. Or at least we all are, you know? So there's, there's some camaraderie there as you kind of realize, oh, there are other people like me. And I've gotten a lot of, a lot of uh, value out of kind of a, I don't like the word mastermind group. I think it's kind of overplayed. But the idea of like, okay, we're all kind of equally yoked. You know, we're in about right. the same space. There are a few people ahead of me, a few people behind. And uh, we can all share you know, be pretty honest and open with each other. Man, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because for me, I started out that exact same way. I was reading a lot of books in the beginning, right, on real estate. Then I started reading books like The Lean Startup and all these other things about business. And and that's where in the beginning you find your mentorship because as uh, one of my mentors, I would like to, uh, to say, uh, what he told me was, you know, you get an opportunity when you're reading books to condense decades into days depending on how how fast you can read these books. But you really, I mean, it's all of their insight. It's all of their best stuff because everybody, when they write a book, they want it to be phenomenal, magical. They spent so much time, energy that they want the hacks. They want people, they already envision themselves being able to share all of their wisdom on stages and, and seeing so many people that says, I read your book and it changed my life. So understand that the energy, the nuggets, the everything they put into those, and you can get all of that priceless information for $20 on top of that most of the time people go on book tours so then after oh, yeah. that you if you love the book if you go on the YouTube and you see them talking about the book then other people are going to have very interesting perspectives about the book asking that author the question and then you can even deep dive even further into it to be like oh that's a good point so yeah. I love that you said that about books um, well you take then, a position yeah. I mean you want to take a position of um, you know, hey, maybe things are going pretty well for me. I mean, you you know, you were rookie of the year and you're like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm important. I'm a big deal, you know, except at home where you're told otherwise. But everywhere else, you're like, I'm a big deal, you know. And and so you can operate under that mindset of like, I know it all. Or you can take any book and and take the position of what will this book teach me? Mm -hmm. And from there, it can be uh, something that you might say, oh, that's very basic. But I, I found I go back to those basics and you just kind of reread just with an open mind. Like, what can I learn? I'm in a new spot, a new position, new perspective. And uh, if you operate from like a just a, a student mindset, right, there's there's always something you can learn because it's a different day to day and you're dealing with different problems than you did 10 years ago. And you might see a whole other angle that you would have missed. So it, I just I got to say that enough, like you can't you can't ever just kind of rest and say, Oh, I know enough. It's just not true. Facts, facts. No, I, a hundred percent agree, man. Uh, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Uh, I guess I, I just have two last questions for you. One we yeah. already kind of touched on a little bit, but I always love to ask it in a different perspective. Um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Knowing everything that you know now and today, and you're so much wiser than you were before, normally when I ask so many people, like, if there was anything that they would change, they say, you know, there's nothing I would change because it got me to this point. But I always like to say, you know, if we really think about it, there's a lot of things that we did that if we would have knew better, we would have done differently. So my question to you is, knowing what you know now, if there was one thing that you would go back and change or that you wish that you would have implemented sooner to accelerate your path and your dream to where you are today, what would that one thing be? I mean, this is this sounds like super uh, self-serving. But and, and but also you'll kind of realize how dense I am in many ways as I say this. But I, you know, my business was teaching people how to think about their money effectively and correctly so that they could be strategic with all their hard work that then translates into a dollar and then like keep that hard work and focus going. Like you're super focused to make the money. Once it once that focus becomes money, don't lose it. Just keep focusing on it and execute even further. And I was teaching that to people with their personal money. And for the first five years of my business, if people were like, hey, we want to invest here, we want to do this, what can we hire? I would look at the checking account balance. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm very risk averse. So I would keep a balance in there. Like I, I wouldn't run it dry at all. And I'm looking at that big pile. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I just always scared. Like, I don't know. Can we? Can we? And then one day, like dumb as I am, I realized I should be using the same rules that I apply personally. I should apply to my business. I should take that pile of money 
And I should be very intentional about, I'm going to put a thousand dollars here. I'm going to set this side aside for taxes. I'm going to set this aside for our next hire. I'm going to do this so we can travel and have a little retreat. Cause we got these remote employees. Like I'm going to start budgeting and being very strategic. Like where the cash goes is where your strategy is and where mm. you want your strategy to be. The cash needs to be first. And it just took me a while to realize that. But when I implemented that suddenly, instead of just seeing this pile of money that would either give me angst because it was small for whatever, you know, however that could be defined or give me a little bit of assurance because it was large. As soon as you'd be like, Hey, Jesse, you know, we got to hire. I would just be like, I don't know if we can, because a pile of money doesn't tell you anything except how much it is. Right. But when you start breaking it down, then it was like, Oh yeah, I've got 40 grand set aside for a hire. I think we can, we can do it. You know, we can make the, take the plunge. And then as we practice that over time, it essentially helped me take, I, I'll say this, I felt like I was taking more risk because I was saying, oh, now we can invest. Now we can invest more aggressively. But I actually was, I wasn't, I was just very clear on what the risk was. And I had this picture that it was super risky to hire someone else. But when I looked at the money and was really clear on what it should do for me, then suddenly it was like, there's no risk there. There's no right. risk at all, you know? And so that helped me really step on the gas for the business from, from 09 until uh, 14, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Cause you could see the money's here. Let's deploy it. Let's not just sit on it and I mean, waste it. So that kind of toots my own horn a little bit, but honestly, I was thinking, I mean, there are times like I blew 80 grand on a bad hire and a bad project. Uh, you know, there was a time we promised a public date for our software and like my, my business partner, I mean, he, he almost killed himself in just like working 120 hours a week. Like it was horrible. And I, I wouldn't give public dates anymore to like, when we're going to launch something, there's no upside there. So there are like lessons and painful moments. I had to go tell Julie, like, Hey, you know, we're in this new house and have no furniture. And I'm like, I just blew 80 grand and, you know, bless her heart. She was like, true, that's a lot. But she wasn't like, man, that could have bought all of our furniture in this empty house. She didn't, she didn't rub my nose in it at all. So, but there were painful times like that, but the big transformative one where I got really clear on the money has to be the strategy. And from there, I felt like it kind of unleashed it. Man, so fire, so fire. The last question that I have for you, is there somebody out there that's listening at this, that they love your journey, they love your wisdom, and they want to blaze a path that's similar to yours, uh, but they have that little voice in their head, right? And we've all had it before, and it says that they're not strong enough, they're not smart enough, or maybe they just don't have enough resources. What's the one thing you would say to that person to get them to just take action? I mean, the honestly, the one thing I could share is just, a little bit more of my story. But uh, when when I started, I had $63 that I told Julie, because we were, we were just operating on such a tight, tight budget. And I said, hey, this $63 that I kind of scraped together, I want to use this to run ads. And we'll see if this thing goes, right? And that gave me enough information to know that there was something there but if you were to ask Jesse back in 2004, um, hey, what will it be like in 2021? I would have been wrong in so many ways. I mean, I wasn't even thinking of it as a business. I was thinking just to make it through school. So I would tell the person, you don't need to know what things are going to look like even a year from now, but just decide what today will look like and then make that happen. And that that is the key. It's just next steps every day, a little bit more of the grind. And the next, that next best thing that you can do is there. And it's, it's there obvious for you in the moment, in that day. And then uh, you just, yeah, one step at a time. None of this happens fast at all. It's just, it's a grind, but it is enjoyable. It's enjoyable to see the improvement, see the iteration, see your first version of your website look atrocious to you versus the next version and all that stuff. The whole part is enjoyable. And all on the way, you get to learn all kinds of new things all kinds of new things about business, about people, hiring, strategy. Like that's the beautiful thing of business is you get to learn about everything. And uh, so you just be patient as you're getting that learning. And I, I'll, I'll put a little asterisk on that. And we're, we're talking on a podcast. So, and I have a podcast as well. So there's a little bit of a, a caveat here, but make sure that you are doing 
more than you are consuming. Make sure you are creating more than you are reading. Make sure that ratio is like 90, 10. Because in this day where all the information is always there, it's like, well, I'm going to throw up a web page. Well, now I got to Google best way to do this. How do I best way to do that? And you're frozen. There's no best way anything. The most mm. important thing is to launch something. So take action and have a, have a bias for action over information. And you'll be, you'll be well on your way. Man, so many jewels. I want to be the first one if no one else has told you, my brother, that I appreciate you and thank you uh, for all of your time today. For anybody who wants to stay connected with you, where can they find you? Uh, directly connected to me. I'm not on social. Again, action and information, that, that kind of bias kicks in there a little bit. Uh, but they are certainly welcome to email me. Like good old-fashioned, shoot me an email, jesse at ynab.com. And I'm happy to to answer. I don't answer fast because I don't live in my inbox very much, but I will answer. And uh, I'd love to connect with people in that way. Um, other than that, my company's all on social and doing their thing. I mean, they're even on TikTok, man. It's getting weird for me. So I it's 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 fun to watch, but um, I'm more I'm the slower pace kind of guy at this point. So shoot me an email and we'll chat. You know, and lead with the cover letter. Then he'll probably That's right. And don't misspell your name. <laughs> don't misspell your name. You can double check that from the signature. No, man, this has been great. So again, we'll we'll drop all of the links in the show notes. But uh, phenomenal conversation. Thank you for coming on. And just as he said, Dream Nation, uh, make sure that you're taking action more than just consuming. Because in the dream we trust, but if we don't take action, that dream we have as we know it will only merely be a fantasy. That's all for this one. We'll catch you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.